G'day, and welcome to the season finale of Shark Week, the podcast. And what a season it's been. We've had amazing shark facts, brilliant guests, and I'm delighted to say we've saved one of the best for last. Today, we'll be joined by award-winning filmmaker, director of documentaries including The Cove and Racing Extinction, and co-founder of the Oceanic Preservation Society. We have Louis Soyosis on the show. We're going to be discussing shark finning, dolphin hunting, climate change, having the Pope on speed dial, and so much more. He's up next. You don't want to miss it. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. So on this episode, I'm delighted to welcome a very special guest. He's an award-winning filmmaker. He's a director of documentaries, including The Cove and Racing Extinction. He's also the co-founder of the Oceanic Preservation Society, OPS. Louis Soasis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Great to be here, Luke. Yeah, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. I know you're super busy these days. What's got you going around the globe? Oh, boy. Well, we've, we've got six films and two book projects. So, you know, every my dance card is pretty full these days. Now, I wanted to start somewhere because you've become kind of a household name in the uh, certainly in the the filmmaking and also the um, you know environmental sect. But for those who don't know you, um, there's one thing that you said, and it was particularly in Racing Extinction that I thought kind of summed up a lot of what your films and stuff have come to mean to me. And that was you said that photography is a weapon, and I thought that was just a, a brilliant way to sum up the way that media can be shown and have social influence. So perhaps could you sort of expound upon that a little bit and also tell us, you know, how you got into filmmaking from a photography background? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I got into this, I mean, I, I love art. I love taking photographs. Um, that was, you know, since I was a kid, but I've always wanted to be a photographer for National Geographic. But the main inspiration is not like to take beautiful pictures for me. It's like, how do you use pictures to change culture? And I know that sounds really highfalutin, but, you know, the when I started at National Geographic, I was the first new photographer they hired in over 11 years. And the first story I did for them was on garbage and recycling. And this is a, a story that I actually proposed. It wasn't like, oh, you know, have the new kid go out and do garbage. I was like looking around at, now remember this is in 1980, um, God, you know, 42 years ago. And there was only one mandatory recycling program in the entire country then. And I thought, this is insane. You know, we're throwing stuff away like, you know, aluminum cans and, and bottles, and there's no reward for it at all. And, and I proposed a story called, uh, for the magazine called Urban Ore. And, you know, that story became a, a cover, and I don't know how many inside pictures, about 35. But, it, you know, Geographic back then was really huge. They had about 11 million subscribers and for every subscriber about four people saw it so you know 44 million people that's about 15 percent of america and there's some really good evidence that shows that once you have 10 percent of the population inspired by a, a truth that's the recipe for social change and you know i'm not saying that the environmental you know 
recycling movement got started with that article, there was part of a chorus of a lot of people working on that issue, but it certainly helped put jumper cables on it. And recycling started to take off for a lot of reasons, but, you know, having mainstream press make it you know, uh, bring it to the front of people's consciousness is, is really helpful. Yeah, and, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, you know, I think a, a film is worth a thousand conferences. You know, we can sit there and you can, you can do podcasts, you can do books, and, you know, there's a way to penetrate people's skull, their, their brain, uh, when you're doing something beyond, I'd say, even photographs. Um, and that's a film is a, is a, you know, it's a weapon of mass construction. You know, you can, you know, you drop a bomb, you kill people, you make a film, and it's constructed around the truth. You, you have allies. And that was always the goal is to, like, how do you use the storytelling capabilities, the art, to change people's, not just what, what they think, but how they behave. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. But you can do it with film. You can you can do it because it I think it penetrates the the brain very deeply into something that's called neuroplasticity. You know, the scientists that study this, they say that you need about ninety minutes to actually change the way a person thinks and behaves. And that's exactly what a film is or a documentary is, or you know, at least ninety minutes. And I, that's really coincidental. It's not uh, you know by design. But when we start, I started doing the research on it, you know, ex post facto after the fact, I started realizing that this is this is. You know, people come out of our movies and say, "Oh, that movie really changed my life." Well, they were they were, des they were designed to do that. Yeah, it wasn't by accident. You know, we have to use the same storytelling techniques as you know George Lucas and Coppola and all the other great directors. But you know, at the end of the day, for us, it's not about ten dollars in a box of popcorn. You know, filling what they call butts and seats. That's what how they look at the audience. It's how do you create a a scenario for that mind in a seat. So when they get out of the theater, they get out of, you know, watching it, you know, streaming on, on television, that they go, they go, oh, my God, my life was so screwed up and I, 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 see, a, I see a way forward. So that's what I mean by, you know, it's, it's a powerful weapon. Sure. Because you can, you can change the soul. Well, the Cove was certainly one of those powerful weapons that you managed to unleash there. I mean, it's multiple award winning, obviously – Probably, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast wouldn't have seen it or at least heard of it and heard of the ramifications of it. What do you think was so moving about that story that caused this global phenomenon of, of awareness of the position of and the plight of dolphins in Japan? Well, I mean, first of all, it was a, we had a really great team. You know, that, that film, you know, became one of the most award-winning documentaries in history, if not the most. It was the first uh, documentary in history to maybe the, the first film in history to sweep all the film guilds. Um, you know, so it was a great film. And, and I got to say that because I, that was my first film and I had a lot of gr wonderful help. And I'm, you know, I bow to the people that, you know, that, that helped me put that together and to fund it. So it's a, it's, it's a group effort to do something like that. First of all, it's not just me. I, I might have the idea, but it's, it's really about the team that you assemble and creating it. But it was a, you know, Rolling Stone magazine probably gave it one of the highest compliments. It said it's a it's a cross between the Born Identity and Flipper. You know, it's a it's it it felt like a you know an action film, and it was an action film, and it was real, and there was something really disturbing about it. And that, you know, we set this the whole premise was set up as like, you know, here's this for people who haven't seen it. 
you know, Rickleberry, who's the guy that captured and trained the five female dolphins that collectively played the part of Flipper for the popular television uh, series called Flipper when I was a kid. Um, he had an epiphany. And it was actually right around Earth Day of, you know, the first Earth Day, 1970. And he had this, this epiphany that these animals were a lot more sentient and intelligent than, you know, even he realized. And that's, you know... I mean, I don't want to give it away if somebody wants to go see it, but, you know, uh, the, there's five female dolphins that played the part, but there's one primary dolphin called Kathy. And after the series, you know, disbanded, they returned the, the dolphins to the Miami Sea Aquarium. And, you know, these dolphins are used to interaction, you know, a lot of interaction with their own kind out in the wild. But then they just basically had Rick. And Kathy swam up to him. This is after the program, like, you know, months later, the, he had heard that Kathy was depressed. You know, dolphins get depressed. They got, you know, some dolphins have bigger brains than us. You know, they're, they're, they, they need stimulus. They're more social. They have more spindle neurons uh, associated with processing complex emotions. And this animal is just put back in a tank. And so Rick went by the aquarium to check on her. And Kathy swam up to, to him, looked at him in the eyes then swam down to the bottom of the tank and never took another breath. Every breath that a dolphin takes is a conscious effort. And Kathy committed suicide in front of him. And that's when Rick had this epiphany, like, I can't be doing this. I, 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 what I did is a huge mistake. I have to rectify it. So he spent his entire life trying to, you know, make amends for this life that he, this of, of Insanity of slavery that he brought on these on these dolphins. So it's a it was a good story. This uh, this tale of one man's redemption against this industry that he created, and then we went in and tried to figure out where the you know there's this place in Japan where they're killing more dolphins than any other place in the world. This little secret cove that people you know media had been trying to get in there. Activists were trying to get in there, and we found a way to penetrate it with you know using military grade surveillance gear and you know the techniques you might say see if you were watching the born identity or mission impossible and it was exciting it was fun and at the end of the day you know once you saw what was going on in the cove it sort of uh, it invites the reader the the viewer to make an alignment like what's so special are these animals special what about the other animals that i'm you know, around me. Maybe they're more sentient and intelligent than I realize. What about the things I'm putting in my body? What about the things I'm eating? What about the what about all the other lies I'm being fed about the world that we we realize isn't true? So I think it was a way of like <laughs> you know, to go back to the original metaphor of, of like throwing a hand grenade in somebody's soul. And not to destroy it, but just to rearrange it and say, what's the truth here? What's, what, are, what is this all about? What are we all about? How, why are we here? Yeah. And what am I going to, more importantly, what am I going to do about it? It was really a, a call to action for people to say, wake up, look at what's going on with the world and the environment. If this is, if this is true about this one species, yeah. what else is true that I haven't been paying attention to? Now, the cove... I think it probably did a few things. Uh, it made it harder for you know people to get away with killing dolphin and and perhaps whale in certain circumstances, and you know it really shined a spotlight on some of these more nefarious and very cruel practices. Um, but I imagine it also must have reduced demand, you know, by shining a spotlight on this and and showing that you know 
kids in Japan were eating so much mercury and, and, you know, so on and so forth. And obviously reducing it by some orders of magnitude or reducing that demand. So with all of those changes, are you seen as a, as a hero or a villain in Japan? It depends on who you talk to. Well, I think the, uh, if you're talking to a customs agent, what do they say? <laughs> are they are they welcome back, Mr. Soyosis? Or um, oh, we've been waiting for you to come back, Mr. Soyosis. You know, I've only been back once since, and that was uh, for the Tokyo Film Festival right after the the film came out. And um, the guy, there was a Spanish director, Alexandro. I can't, I can't remember his last name. Famous Academy Award winner. He was he was the guest. Um, director of the Tokyo Film Festival it was supposed to be the, a green film festival that year, the first, the first one ever. And they said, "Well, if you don't show the cove, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit." So he he did it, and I was told that his arrest warrants out for me in Japan. So I came, I went over there with a lawyer, and I I'm getting off the who spoke Japanese, and I'm getting off the plane, and and I, I'm not talking about in the airport, in the gangway, as you, you know, the first structure that you you leave the plane. There's like news crews there filming me getting off the plane and i'm told there was arrest warrants out for me conspiracy to disrupt commerce trespassing and photographing undercover cops without you know permission so i I thought well i could go to jail but i think because of the international incident it would cause they they left me go but i really had to have security and i was isolated you know i walked the green carpet but there was nobody there Nobody was there. It's just me and my lawyer just walking the green carpet. They just made sure that there was no kind of, you know, um, reception at all for me. And they try to, um, but I, I, I wouldn't go back again. Um, but I know it's, it's not about being like loved or reviled. It's like, you know, just do the work and then get out of the, you know, get out of the way. It's like, you know, if you know, if, if making a film's like a bomb, I'm, I prefer to just you know drop it from you know thirty thousand feet like a plane, and then just you know move on. You know, go to go on to the next thing, and I don't get involved with the trolls and you know you know people people. You, life's too short to get involved with every troll that there is. You know, um, and I, I think that the young people in Japan, I'm told, they're, they're you know they're abandoning whale meat. They, they're they're part of the consensus of the world that realizes that these animals don't belong in captivity. They don't, they shouldn't be eaten. Um, demand's going down. It's really an old guard. I think after yeah. this, this next generation dies off, it'll, it, it too will, will go away. Hopefully that's the case. I mean, there was just this uh, news piece, I don't know if you saw it, just came out a couple of days ago where, uh, you know, a kilo of whale tail meat fetched, you know, $3,600 at Japan auction. Um, I, I think that's, I mean, every year there's this whole prestigious thing of the opening of markets and stuff. I think that was, you know, uh, um, a sort of honorarium, you know, where they, they'll pay a huge amount for tuna or for whale or something. And hopefully that brings prosperity to their shop or their dealership or whatever it is. But it's still seen culturally as something um, desirable or prestigious or however you want to put it, but hopefully that next generation stomps that out. Yeah, and the the price of it. I mean, they do. Yeah, you're you're right. They do that with you know sushi too, and it's really it's really a marketing thing. Yeah. more than anything. I mean, if you go to the really high end sushi restaurants in New York, I'm told I haven't been one to, to a long time, but I was yeah. having dinner a couple weeks ago with three-star Michelin chef in New York was, was saying that he used to go to this place that's 
was used to be like three hundred dollars for a meal. Now it's a thousand. And he says, no, it's not because the the meal's gotten any better. It's just that the fish has become rarer. Yeah, yeah. So they're they can't. Uh, you know, it's just, it, we're involved in something that's not sustainable, and that's commercial fishing. You know, that's that. It, it's getting the ocean in so much trouble that, that to to fish at that scale, it's not fishing anymore. It's extermination, and that's what people are involved in. I mean, if you're eating animals that are caught that way, you're you're part of this, you know, species genocide. Before we get too far into this, I want to um, set up ra uh, racing extinction for us because it touches on a lot of this stuff. And the premise is that, you know, we've been through several extinction events, but perhaps humans are creating the next one. Is that is that fair? That's fair. Yeah, I mean, there's been five major extinctions in the history of the planet. We're going through a sixth one right now called the Anthropocene or the uh, Anthropocene. Uh, and that's a, a human-caused extinction event. And, you know, when, when I worked at National Geographic, I, I did four stories about the Mesozoic for them. The Mesozoic is the midlife of the planet, the age of, of dinosaurs. And, the, you know, that, that the dinosaurs were the, the most successful species on the planet, probably still are, you know, because a small group of them branched out and became birds. Or, and became birds. There's like 4,500 species of mammals and about nine. Thousand, ten thousand species of, of birds, and you know, birds are little flying dinosaurs. So they're real. They're they're really kicking ass still after like two hundred thirty million years. But you know, I was interviewing Michael Novacek, the head, the provost of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and we were talking about extinction. And he said, "Well, we're going through an extinction." He's the one that really alerted me to what was going on. He said, "Well, we're going through an extinction event right now." I said, "What do you What do you mean?" He said, "Well." You know, we're losing species faster than, you know, we've ever lo lost them in history before. There's a, a million of them. Uh, we, we, first of all, we don't even know how many species are on the planet within, you know, an order of magnitude. But let's say there's 8 to 10 million that have been um, projected out there. They've identified about 2 million of them. And he said, we're losing species faster than our ability to even record that they're here on the planet with us. And this is just a, a shock to my brain, you know. And he said, yeah, it's like we're burning down the the Library of Congress before we had a chance to read the books. And I said, well, you know, what are the drivers of extinction? So by far far and away, the biggest driver of extinction is, is agriculture. The raising of animals for human consumption is the main driver of this extinction event. So in Racing Extinction, I, I've seen it before, and yesterday before this podcast, I, I thought, I need to watch that again. And uh, I got about halfway through it, and I had to take a break because it's it entertaining but quite bleak. And the, the scenes that I was watching and something that just hit me really hard was you guys uh, infiltrating into areas where you shouldn't have been in China, you know, through various devices, which I commend you on doing. And you were finding just an abundance and just mind-blowing amount of shark fins that were being dried out for the local market. And my thoughts are just, it, it's mind-boggling to think this is just one little rooftop in one little area and that they have entire generations of sharks on their roof. Um, what was 
getting access to that like for you and and what were the feelings that were brought up uh, well there was there was two areas actually one was in Hong Kong and the other one that was a, a little town I want to say it was in Pucci anyway there was the one uh, it was actually you know Paul Hilton who told us about that and yeah. basically we just went up took the elevator and went up I can't remember how he heard about it but um, that was just a matter of just going in there with a big team and then yeah, just over overpowering them just with numbers. There's no, you know, people telling you to get out, but like, what are you <laughs> going to do? There's seven of us and we're all spread to, you know, every, every corner of the rooftop, you know, you spend five minutes and you get out of there. Much more scary was when we were posing as shark oil dealers in this really remote town uh, where they were killing. It was in, in the film, I think it says it's it's ten thousand tons of illegal sharks a year, but it's actually a hundred thousand. You know, somebody's told us, "Well, that's a you're not listening to the the dialect is a little bit different there." They're saying a hundred thousand tons a year just from this one facility of illegal shark, you know, uh, shark meat, and so that that place there was uh, there was seven operations in that town. After we went through through there, six of them closed down right afterwards. So, and that was scary because we realized, oh boy, you know, there's just no support here. We're not in a major town. There's no police. They're probably the police know about what's going on there. Um, that was much scarier. So that that six are closed down. Are they closed down permanently, or do you think they just set up shop somewhere else? It's a good question. I, I haven't been back since. I mean, yeah. there's, there's <laughs> I feel the same way about going back to. Japan, as I do that, that part of China, <laughs> you know, globe trekking with camera and getting banned from spots. <laughs> that's that's actually great professional credentials there. <laughs> right after we did that scene, um, actually after we did the, the film and it came out, yeah, uh, I got invited to host the Guangzhou Film Festival. And I was like, man, is this a ruse? Am I going to go over there and they're going to arrest me? Because. <laughs> uh, you know, it's yeah. I don't know. I, we, we didn't do follow up, so I don't know if they're permanently closed. But that, that's what we were told. Like right after that. I mean, certainly after you, it creates that exposure. Uh, it makes it harder for those people. Those people to do business. But it, it could have popped right right up in a different part of town. That's you know that's what happened when we went to um the wildlife market in Guangzhou. We we went to the place where SARS first started you know the first covid back in i think it was 2002 2003 uh, there was a wildlife market that you know either i think it either came from bats or civet cats um that the first epidemic and then you know about i don't know less than a year later the, the wildlife market opened up again just like across town hey you, you speak of you know follow-ups do you guys have any projects planned for a follow-up i mean the cove managed to change so much for cetaceans, for for dolphins, for whales, particularly in the culture, as we've talked about, it seems that it's perhaps a harder culture to penetrate with sharks and flipping over the, you know, largely Asian audience for shark fin and and things like that that are decimating the oceans. What more can we do? I mean, it seems to me we're just hammering the same nail over and over and over. What's the level we can pull there? Yeah, it's a it's a good question and. You know, I know Wild Aid has done some amazing things with have, yeah. using people in their in their culture. I mean, you can you can imagine what would what would happen if 
let's say an Asian came over here and started talking about, you know, st stop eating bacon. It's like, you know, it's really tough to hear these messages that are about, you know, if it's perceived as culture. And you know, so I'd say that, you know, if there's any, you know, people from, from Asia listening that want to do something, that's really effective, much more effective than, you know, white people going over there and telling people what to eat. I mean, we can certainly manage that in our own country, you know, to try to sh shut down as much shark finning as possible. But, you know, having voices, and that's, that's what's happening at the Cove right now. There's a, you know, every year when the, the dolphin season starts up again, instead of having, you know, people from Sea Shepherd or our organization there, you, you have, you know, Japanese people speaking up and, you know, giving them a voice. And that's that's where the cultural change really happens quicker. I think it's uh, one thing I've seen, at least in like the tourism type circuit, it's, it's one thing for, let's say, just speaking broadly, you know, a, a Western person to go to an Eastern culture and say, hey, I'm bringing something to you, like you guys did in the village there with the, the manor race. You know, I'm bringing something to you, the, the proposition of being able to make more money, supporting your family, educating your kids better, and you can do all this via this tool, which is, you know, tourism in that case. And that is kind of a gift I'm giving you, and it's a way that you can propel your society here without it being an admonishment of what you're actually doing as just a better alternative. That's a, a lot, such a vastly different thing than saying, hey, we don't like what your culture is doing and you need to stop it. And that's where the internal change really needs to happen. So you're totally right about that. Yeah, the whole thing to me is like, I mean, I think we're going to get to a better world eventually, but is it going to happen with, you know, with all this in real, time yeah in time it's just <laughs> speed and scale yeah yeah i mean that i mean i know we haven't talked about this and i just probably dragging on a lot longer than you wanted to but you know we do, we, we, we do these projection events that's why we do these projection events like um if, if people haven't seen racing extinction you know we've kind of been that film by doing these projections of endangered species on the on the um united nations and the empire state building and the, when we premiered the film at Sundance, we only had done the projections on the, on the United Nations. And the city back then, the city of New York, said, well, we'll close you down if uh, we get more than 2,000 people there. And going back to this idea that you need 10% of the population activated for, for cultural change, you know, we know that even at the – you know, Discovery – showed racing extinction and they did something unprecedented when they did that film they they uh, released it uh, on om, om, nearly all their channels like they had access at that time to like two and a half billion people you know through all their networks and so they started in New Zealand and as the sun came up around the world and ended up in California you know I think by the end of the first day uh, 38 million people had seen that film and uh, but it's still that's not ten percent of the population, and so we, I had this I had this idea I wanted to put endangered species on these iconic buildings, and I remember Discovery our producer back there said, well you know, in New York doing a projection event on the Empire State Building, which is where my that was the holy grail to me. He said it'll be uh, in August. It'll still the sun will be come up. Uh, it'll stay up late, and the press won't be there because. You uh, you know they they can't afford overtime, and then um, 
and then all the important people in August are going to be over in the Hamptons or over in, in, uh, <laughs> in Europe. Enjoying their summers elsewhere, yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, we had uh, – so we did it anyway. And we had 939 million media views by Thursday. We did some on Saturday night. And we thought, you know, we almost got to that ten. Well, we we over that ten percent number, and we thought we can't, we couldn't have done any better than that. We knocked out of the heart, but the park we had like endangered species on Empire State Building. Fifth Avenue looked like it was the Easter parade. You know, just thousands and thousands of people on the streets and on rooftops, and it was amazing. We were, you know, high fiving. We we're so so you know thrilled that we we'd done that. You know, we got such a the message across to a, a world audience, and then the Pope called. And said, can you put endangered species on the Vatican during COP21? You know, because wow. St. Francis is named after St. Francis of Assisi, the patron saint of animals. And he wanted people, world leaders to be reminded that um, there's more at stake than just humanity if we don't solve this this problem. And so we had 4.4 billion media views on uh, with that, like just a few months later. So these projection events are are really important to us. Now we have we will have one designed for the east side of the United Nations to do at the next General Assembly building. Uh, me, sorry, this General Assembly meeting next year. So we hope to even get like you know 10 billion media views on that one, and we'll have voice and sound and. We'll be instructing people to. Should be easy. Just call the Pope back and say, "Hey, we need your influence <laughs> again, buddy." <laughs> well, we, we, we have the um, Secretary General's per- permission on this, so it's, it's now it's just about the money. You know, it's like how do you how do you get a few million dollars together to to change the world, and that's that's what our mission yeah. is right now. We've been uh, talking. Obviously, there's a Shark Week podcast. We talk a lot about sharks, and uh, in the recent podcast, we've been talking a lot about the sustainability of catching shark in certain areas, and there's. Um, been a lot of debate as to the integrity and, and validity and availability of data that show that, hey, you know, certain take levels are sustainable in certain areas, but then what is that knock-on effect to the rest of the world? And yeah, the answer has been resoundingly from the scientific side, well, we believe it's globally unsustainable, but it's very hard to get the data um, on the sort of macro level from fishermen or even from some of the you know, governmental agencies, it's been like, hey, the species is well managed in our area and that's really all we care about. Um, your work in racing extinction touched a lot on shark fishing. What is your sort of global view of the current position of you know, the oceans and shark in particular and what we're doing to it? Well, I mean, I used to subscribe to the idea, I mean, certainly pre-cove that you know there was kinds of fishing that were sustainable and i think what we're finding is that a lot of the data isn't reliable there's very few commercial grade fisheries that are sustainable and then they 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 seem like it then they collapse you know maybe it's for unforeseen circumstances you have all you have multiple insults going on in the oceans besides overfishing you have acidification so that you know plankton have t- uh, more trouble you know plankton's the basis of the entire ocean food web and that's you know i think we've lost something like 40 percent of plankton production since the 1950s so you have a, a degraded ocean you have we're vacuuming up you know predators and preys in, in the ocean for for all fish species and then you have you know, a, a, a more polluted ocean, you know, which is making things worse and it's warming up and, you know, things are moving around. And I don't think we have 
you can have good data on what's going on because it's a it's so you know, if, if you're looking at the actual stocks of the oceans, what you know we've lost over ninety percent of the actual numbers of fish, and then we're with that ten percent that's left over, we're trying to manage that. I mean, we're really pretty arrogant, I think, to think that. I mean, you, you got to want to do something, I guess. But I, I, I'm, I probably gave out more seafood watch guides than anybody on the planet. We used to order them by the crate from you know, Monterey Bay Aquarium. And then, you know, after I started lo- really looking at, like, well, this one's, they're not looking at the toxicity of this fish. They're just looking at the sustainability. And then you start to add all these factors in there. It's like, why don't we just leave them alone? You know, like that woman, you know, told me at, you know, at, at, at lunch 12 years ago, eat everything else. You know, and people say, well, we're, we're, you know, we're designed to eat animals, you know, we're, you know, hunter gatherer. Well, you know, if you look at the real data, we're gatherer hunters, you know, there's four primitive cultures in, in the, in the world that are left that are you know, relatively untouched by civilization. And when the men go out to hunt, frequently they're expending more calories than they are bringing back protein. And it's the women that are like, you know, make, you know, cooking up the tubers and the plants and something like, 95% of their calories come from plants. So this this notion that we're hunters is really a male construct that uh, designed around a, a social need, you know, social hierarchy. If you're the you know the more efficient hunter, you're going to get the women. Blah 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 blah. So it's really a and, and is this the world that we think we should be living in? Now, four percent of the animals of the mammals in the world are actually wild. The rest of them. Are humans and cows and pigs and, you know, even birds. It's like, you know, the vast majority of animals on this planet uh, are farm animals. Before we wrap up here, I want to try to – we like to give people tools as best we can um, to better understand, to better protect, to visit, to experience, you know, the ocean in particular. And, you know, it's something that is very dear to your heart, I know. What is the lever that you can give people? What tool can you give people to exercise their ability to better protect the ocean, to better protect sharks, to have a an understanding of it? I think you uniquely, you know, we've got a lot of listeners who are perhaps landlocked, who love the idea of there being sharks and stuff, but they don't interact every day. They just like the idea of their kids being able to have a healthy ocean in the future. What should they be doing? Well, you know, the first... The first thing I would do is ask people, "What are you good at? You know, what 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 do you you know? Not saying what should you do like it's a commandment that comes down. It's like you know, what are you good at? If you, you are you doing a podcast? Can you take pictures? Can you, you know, you have a, a good social media following? You know, and, and try to figure out how to adapt your skills to talk about or." Yeah, to to try to influence you know the people around you. Every every everything that you do, everything you do is being watched by people. And I'm not saying you should be doing things to you know because other people are watching it. But like this is a, you know what what you're eating, people notice. How you're behaving, how you're acting with other people, people notice. Um, you know the the more you can be a a, a human being that you would want to hang around with. You know, the, 
the better that is, not just for sharks, but for the environment. Because when you start working, when you start, when you start being a better version of yourself, you start wanting to be like good, good to other people. You you want to be better to the environment. You're thinking about your your consumption. You know, if you want to say what's going on in the oceans, don't eat the animals there. You know, I, I love fish. You know, like Sylvia Earle, she's a, I don't, don't think she's vegan, but she doesn't eat fish. It's like, why would I eat my subjects? <laughs> yeah, the one thing she studies the most. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if, if you want to save the oceans, don't, don't eat fish. I mean, that's the one thing everybody can do, right? And, or, or eat less of it. Um, you know, you're talking about like, you know, I went to Kiki University over in Japan when we were doing the, the Cove, and it was the first uh, university to farm raise bluefin, bluefin tuna. And bluefin are really notoriously difficult. They're skittish, you know, like the headlights would shine into the pens and they would all crash into the, the side and kill themselves. I mean, it was really, really, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And I remember going there and there was, they were shoveling mackerel. Like you were mentioning, mackerel into the pen. Like uh, then, I think it was. It depends on the, on the the size of the animal. But you know, when they're growing up, you know, they they put something like fourteen pounds of mackerel to for one one pound of bluefin. It's like, you know, back then I was eating fish, and I was like, just a minute, each one of those little mackerels was enough to feed my family. I think it's you know, like a, a, roughly a ten to one ratio. If you look across broadly across aquaculture, you know what it basically costs you in raw resources to pull out, you know, 10 times raw resources, which are other animals, shrimp, krill, whatever it might be, uh, yeah, and, 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 for pulling out one pound of other, of prime meat. Yeah. yeah, and here's the rub. I mean, you know, the the ethical argument, you know, as long as, long as people think it's normal, natural, necessary to eat animals, they will. You know, the, the, the data shows that people don't give a damn unless you can prove that it's a, a, an advantage to them. I think that's why the Game Changers was so successful is because, you know, there's a vanity reason. It's better for you. It's better for your health. And, oh, and by the way, it's going to be better for the environment and better for animals for all these other reasons. So, you know, I, I get the environmental argument, but only about 7% of the, the population will get that argument. Most people don't care. So you have to, what do people care about? Themselves, their vanity, their kids. They want to live longer. They want their, their parents to live longer. They want to live longer. They don't want to take care of their parents with Alzheimer's. Oh, by the way, Dr. Dean Ornish, that that film, he's, he's now trying to reverse early stage Alzheimer's with diet and, and lifestyle. And it's way too early to, you know, in the process. But I've seen people that it looks like they're coming out of the fog. There's people that are actually, not everyone, but early stage people, some of them reverse. And if, if, and if science is telling you that, you know, get your affairs in order, that, you know, this is, these are the, the best days of your life are behind you and so life is going to get steadily worse. And that's what science shows, you know, that that's if you do nothing, you keep eating the same way, you keep, you keep the same lifestyle, that's what's going to happen. You're going to, you're going to die a miserable death, a slow, miserable death and forgetting the, the people around you. But there's actually people that aren't just slowly getting worse; they're actually getting better, with you know that that intervention program I described. So that's that's that should be, you know, for people up there. I, I, when you start talking about food, and you know, people, if you're a young guy, you know, you think, okay, I just want to look good. But you know, you get to be my age, it's like, okay, you've seen enough people, you've seen your relatives that you know, same basic genetics and they're not doing as well. They're on heart medication. They're on diabetes medication. They're starting to lose their cognitive ability. And you think, well, how can I not go that path? Well, 
it's not about medicine. It's a, well, it is medicine, but it's food. I keep my food. That's that's it. It's real simple. You want to save the world. You know, if you want to change the world, change what's on your plate. You know, eat food that's more sustainable. It's better for you, better for the planet, better for other animals. And you know, with sharks, I mean, you know. There's a lot of people working on it. You know, it's, it seemed to be primarily an Asian thing with the, you know, with shark fin soup, which, you know, I, I again, it's a cultural thing. And, you know, if people are in, in that culture, you know, educating them, just people respond to, you know, to, to letter writing or, or call up the owner and say, hey, you know, shark fin soup's on your menu. Really? I'm not going to go there. And don't go there. You know, that's we, we, people forget. You know, there's that wonderful maxim by Margaret Mead. She said, you know, never doubt that a few thoughtful citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Everybody out there, everybody listening to this podcast has, you are changing the world. It's just that the people that think that they can are actually the ones that are doing it. And, you, and you're being watched. People are taking, you know, are, are listening to you. They're, they're watching what you're doing. And the more that you start to tap into this universal... Um, I don't know what it is, like a zeitgeist of uh, you're doing something that's not just for yourself, you're doing it for the planet. That's really sexy. People want to be part of a, a movement. They want to feel that they're belonging to a clan that's a tribe that's helping save the world. And the, the, I think I've got a lot of hope because I see the kids out there that are doing it. They're the, the, the lifestyle that we had where it was about accumulation, it was about things, it's about ownership of big houses and cars – there's a lot of kids out there that don't want their own car anymore. They don't want to be taking care of a lawn in their house. They want to have experiences. They want to be, you know, buying a brand that's is, you know, supports the values that they have. They want to be, they're listening to people that are, you know, that are in tune with a better way to live. So it's, it's very, you know, I, I have a hope that it's happening. Maybe not at the scale right now. I'd, 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 I'd like to see, but it's happening. There's a revolution going on. I, I just got back from Brazil. Like, uh, I was there for about two and a half weeks. Biggest beef producer in the world. There's a vegan revolution going on down there, and it's 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 inspiring to see that you know things can change really quickly. Remember what you're doing with your flip phones 14 years ago. Totally. Uh, before we sign off, I want to ask you about you know this to round it back to the weapon that you've chosen. You know, art, photography, now film to enact change. Is it, I know it's super important to make films that are entertaining, that people can watch that, you know, that have a hook, that get people, you know, engaged with the content because the content is hard to watch sometimes. Just the reality of it is is stark. But how much of your, you know, project planning is built around we need to make this change and find a way to make it happen. Or I think there's a great film here that people might receive and get a message from. Is there a distinction there for you? Everything that we do has to have an ability to flip one of those levers. You know, so it's like, what are the what's the change that we're trying to create? And then how do we make a film about it? You know, and it's, and a lot of times it's counterintuitive. Because you think, oh, well, it's it's about awareness. If I, I need to tell people about the X and then they'll change. Well, that's not how it works. You know, when we looked at 
after we did Racing Extinction, people said, what can I do? What's the one thing I can do? And I, I was like, well, food, you know, food. So we made this film, The Game Changers. And that's that's how we, we go about it. It's, it's not about like, oh, this will be a great film. Um, I'm, I'm watching a series right now about ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. And it's, it's, a, it's a great film. And Peter Jackson wanted me to do a film on his facility out in Wellington, I believe, over in New Zealand. And I thought, man, I could be doing that. This would be fun to be hanging out with these, you know, these directors and doing this great stuff. But it's like, how am I going to change the world with that? You know, I'm 65 years old. I've, you know, hopefully I've got a few more decades left in me. But like, I want to use my time on this planet constructively so that I'm flipping those levers. So I don't go back. I don't want to be on my deathbed and think, God, I wish I would have done X, you know, I was, you know, I want my life to be, you know, to have meaning as I'm living it. And I also want, you know, my legacy, our legacy of the people that are doing these films to say, I'm glad we did this stuff because the world's a little bit different place. And it's, and it is a different place because we came here. The world looks differently because, you know, Luis Ahoyas and the team of people that we've got together, there's a little band of brothers and sisters, we did change the world. We're doing it with film. And it feels good to be part of it. The thing is, once you've done something that really resonates and you see the impact, it's like there's no better feeling in the world than to, to feel like you're making a positive change in people's lives. Strangers. I don't need the adulation. I don't need the, the awards. I just want to... Just the act of of doing something that's good for somebody else that doesn't know your name, they don't know where it came from, they don't know what why why they're doing what they're doing, but they're doing it. You go to a restaurant, and we were down at a restaurant in uh, in um, in Brazil, and you know the the owners had changed their their menu to a vegan restaurant because primarily of what we've done. Yeah, and you know they didn't know I was the director, but I'm thinking, you know what? <laughs> I love That's this pretty place. cool. <laughs> oh, Louis, I want to thank you for your time today. I know that your travels uh, have you bounced around the globe doing all this uh, really important work, but I guess I can just leave it by saying, you know, with no accolades or adulation around it, but just sincere thanks for changing the world. Your work yeah, is important well, and I appreciate well, you doing it. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything that you're doing, Luke. Yeah, doing our best over here at the Shark Week <laughs> podcast. We didn't talk about much about sharks, but I think we talked about some very important stuff that absolutely affects sharks. It's all, exactly, it's all related. Yeah. Well, thanks again, mate. We'll chat to you soon. Well, we covered a lot of ground there, didn't we? <laughs> Everything from uh, sharks to uh, land use to filmmaking. And wow, Louis is just such an interesting guest. But one of the resounding things that, I took away from my conversation with him just now is that we're seeing in real time someone who has taken their passion and found a way to enact change. And I think that's something that we all, you know, try to do in in our work and our lives. You know, we want change, whether it be just a better life for our family or we want change in how society functions. We're all trying to do that. We're all trying to find the levers, as he would put it, to be able to do that. And he's managed to take his art and find a way to convey that to people in such a way that it's engaging and it sheds light on a topic that needs change and thereby actually getting that change to happen, which I think is absolutely incredible. So 
so many times I, I talk to people and they're looking for advice on, you know, what can they do with their lives basically? You know, how can I be a better shark diver? How can I, you know, get onto the water and do all these amazing things? And I think Louis sums it up really good. He asked one question, what are you good at? And how can you use that? Now, Louis is showing us how he's doing that. And I challenge you all to think about that yourself. What are you good at? How can you enact the change that you want to see? And that can be a very broad thing. I'd love it to be how we can protect sharks in the ocean better. And however you choose to do that, particularly if you're in a culture or society that needs change, then I encourage you to get out there and do your damnedest to make that change happen. And enjoy it while you're at it, because it looks like Louis having a good time getting banned from all types of countries. <laughs> all right, well, that's all for today's episode. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this pod, this was our last episode of the season, and I just wanted to thank you all for listening. Sincerely, we appreciate you coming here and listening to new guests, hopefully getting new knowledge and uh, discovering some things about our planet that you didn't know before. And I'm sure we'll be back with a new season before you know it. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe to help us out with that. And until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon.